Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today will be another packed show full of different international titles, including a few new launches. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. But on today's stack, we'll start with a moving interview I did with uh, Mark Neville, a British photographer based in Ukraine. His latest project was called Stop Tanks with Books. We spoke about the latest in Ukraine and more about his project as well. Mark Neville, uh, welcome to the stack. First of all, pleasure. Thank you so much for being our guest this week. Uh, but Mark, I mean, you are at the moment in Ukraine. Can you give us the latest update of where you are? before we talk about your projects, actually. Sure, so I've been living in uh, central Kiev near Maidan since about late 2020. So about a year and a half. And I woke up on Thursday morning to the sound of explosions and sirens. So this is yesterday morning. And uh, I lived there with my partner and it was clear that a full-scale invasion from Russia was being undertaken immediately from all the news reports and uh, Lots of casualties, shelling all over the country, basically. So we spent the day in Kiev, my partner and I, Lukira, and then we decided, what are we going to do? Should we stay in Kiev or should we try and move west to western Ukraine near Poland? And actually, we had a report in that they were going to try and target the presidential house, which is about 50 meters away from our home in Kiev. So we decided we could not really risk that because if they're going to start shelling within 50 meters of where we live, I'm sorry, I just don't want to put myself through that. So we decided the best thing to do is be to, you know, to come to Lvov, which is where we are now. So we just arrived literally one minute ago after a, a 22 hour car journey, which was basically mostly full of traffic jams because everybody is trying to move west to escape the conflict. Of course, there's shelling here as well in the West, but it's slightly less vociferous than it is in Kiev, in and around Kiev at the moment. That's very haunting, uh, Mark. And first of all, tell us, what's your connection actually with Ukraine? Because I know you've started to go there quite a lot, I believe from 2015, is that correct? That's correct, Fernando. So basically, I was working on a project about mental health issues in the British military. I made a book called Battle Against Stigma, the stigma of mental health issues in the military, basically. And I made it following a kind of residency, if you like, and embedding with 16 Air Assault Brigade, the paratroopers in Helmand, Afghanistan. So I, I had spent three months with the paratroopers in Afghanistan during that conflict in 2010. I came back with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, decided to make a book about it. I made a book about it, and it was actually seized by UK border force because they didn't want it coming out. So it was banned by my own country. And yet, the same year it came out, in 2015, I got an email from Kiev Military Hospital in Ukraine saying, we heard about your book. We've got all these guys and women coming back from the front line suffering with these invisible wounds, you know, trauma, war trauma, and we don't know how to treat them. We don't have any experience of treating PTSD. So, so they said, do you have a Ukrainian language version of your book? And I said, I'm really sorry, I don't, but I'm going to have it translated into Ukrainian for you. I was so touched 
so moved that a post-Soviet country, in inverted commas, post-Soviet country would be so forward-thinking about treating mental health issues that they should want my, my small amount of knowledge found in this book that I've made. So I had it translated, I sent them a PDF of the translation, and I thought, no, it's not enough, I'm going to go and visit. So 2015, I went to Kiev for the first time to visit the military hospital, and I just fell in love with Ukraine. I fell in love with the people, the food, the culture, the history, and I'm pretty well-traveled, and I have to say that I've never had that same feeling with any other place or country or people. And then every time I had an opportunity to come to Ukraine for work or, or not for work, I would come. And so by 2020, I thought, why are you still living in London when your heart is in Kiev? So, so I moved, you know. I also met my partner who I live with now, Zukiria, and that, that was it. I just thought, I'm moving. So uh, I've had this ongoing relationship with Ukraine for five or six years, but it had always been in my mind right from 2015 to make this book called Stop Tanked With Books to try and end the conflict in Eastern Ukraine. Because as most people think the conflict began like three weeks ago or something, but it didn't, it started in 2014. Do you imagine? It's not really point... a surprise, is it? It's not, it's really not. But the West has chosen to ignore it for eight years. So they barely reported on it. They did nothing to help in real terms. And now, of course, surprise, surprise, it's a major global catastrophe waiting to happen. And it's still waiting to happen because no one's doing anything about it. The sanctions aren't tough enough. The EU is still prevaricating about whether to stop SWIFT payments going through Russia. They should have enabled NATO membership for Ukraine immediately, immediately. And they're still prevaricating about it because what the West never really understood was that Russia only responds to deterrence. It does not respond to appeasement or negotiations. And when I say Russia, I mean the Kremlin. I don't mean Russian people. I'm very pro-Russian people, but I'm deeply anti the Kremlin. And Mark, it's so interesting that yeah. I, I believe, like as a photographer, you, you would know the power of an image as well. I've seen the images of Stop Tanks with books. It's, it's just amazing. What did you want to, to portray from Ukraine in that? project did you want it to kind of make people warm up to to ukrainians because there's some very touching images as well it comes to mind uh, i believe one of the most famous images from the book which is the ukrainian woman uh, like smoking a cigarette i mean there's so much to decipher in that image thank you I, i'm really delighted it's touched you in some way fernando well basically every book should have an aim i believe so although i've taken thousands of images in ukraine i left out some of the best images in fact, in the edit of this book, because they weren't serving the overall aim and ambition of the book. So the book is to really engage the Western audience and make them see versions of themselves, recognize versions of themselves in these portraits of Ukrainians, because Ukrainians have been completely misrepresented for eight years now as a result of the Kremlin propaganda machine pumping out all this misinformation about Ukrainians being fascists or which is complete nonsense. I never heard such nonsense ever. But unfortunately, some of it got picked up by Western media and propagated and disseminated. Not all of it, but quite a lot. So it's about redressing that balance. And the other thing I've tried to do, not just through the images, but through the book as a whole, is provide other kinds of portraits of Ukrainian people. So these portraits come through short stories by Ukrainian novelists 
Luba Yakinchuk, who's written incredible, heartbreaking stories about the Russian occupied Donbass, uh, where the Russians have been since 2014. You know, people have been kidnapped, tortured, set on fire. I mean, just awful, awful, awful stories. And so there are these short stories, there are my photographs. There's also research from the Center for Eastern European Studies in Berlin about the political views of the 2.5 million people who have already been displaced by the war since 2014. And there's my call to action. And the call to action is very strong and explicit and activist. And it's saying, allow Ukraine to join NATO immediately, no bureaucracy, no red tape, make it happen. It's saying, really strict, imposable, controllable sanctions need to be put in place and support for Ukraine on all levels and start thinking about them as, as your friends, not as this other. Because the war will not stop with Ukraine. It'll go on, Putin will go on to invade Poland and Lithuania and Latvia. This is just the beginning, unfortunately. So now is the time to act. And that's what the book is saying. So I, I made it at breakneck speed in January. February, it was ready to send out. Last week, we sent out 100 copies for free to politicians, to media, to celebrities, to negotiators, to ambassadors, all the people we think could possibly help Ukraine in some way. And, and it's about connecting to people emotionally through the book as well. So I really believe that things change because of people's emotions, you know, public opinion changes because of our emotions towards something. And people do develop emotional relationships towards photo books. And that's what I, I'm praying they're gonna do with this as well. You know, it's, it's often a poem from World War I that can change public opinion about a conflict or, or a song about Vietnam or a painting, or in this case, I hope a photo book. But I think it's those things, it's those art pieces of art that really change perception and get people on board and behind something. So. We're desperately trying to get these books out as quickly as possible. I'm stuck in Ukraine, trapped here for the moment, but as soon as I can get out, I'm going to Istanbul where the books are stored, where they were printed, and I'll be sending out another three or 400 copies to this target audience who are trying to influence. Thank you very much, Mark, and be safe there. And if you want more information about Mark, a book you just go to his website markneville.com or his instagram page as well the book will be available commercially in the next month as well for europe and for the united states stay tuned here on the stack wine cellar journal is a delightful magazine with everything you need to know about the world of wine for issue 25 chandra redesigned the title which is looking fresher with the same good content. She tells me more about the latest issue and also about her other print releases. So it's number um, 25 and we are now, we entered the seventh year. With Wine Cellar Journal, we do four issues per year. And, uh, you know, I had I had this design already like two years in, in, the, in the cupboard and uh, young designers looked at the magazine and made me a proposal and, and I was not ready because uh, the, the other magazine was a little bit, like you mentioned, you know, it was was a little bit more old-fashioned it was more traditional during this COVID time I started to look at it again and I realized we need something more fresh something more light I don't want to say too happy it's not happy but it's, it's really fresher and uh, so I was ready we were also the seventh year I always think the seventh year it's a special number you can change things 
And so I said, gave them a green light. This is the first one. We are working now on number 26. And I think, you know, during all this year, we will still learn and adopt. Yeah, it's, it's like you say, it's really nice and fresh. And it gives me also a lot of opportunity to, to enlarge the chapters, how they are. So it's not so strict. It's, it's more open. Very good use of the word strict, because that's exactly how it feels. Like it's a bit more a free. But one thing that remains the same is I love the way you cover wine because it doesn't, it doesn't feel very pretentious, which a lot of the wine coverage, I mean, I have to say, it feels a bit like that. And, and, and we were discussing before the interview that that was always your intention, right? Exactly, because, you know, we, we have to be honest, wine is a, is a specific topic and you have a lot of really professional that are really keen to know every detail, but then you have a lot of, of people like, uh, let's say you and me, we also sometimes love to drink a glass of wine on, on Monday, on Tuesday we have tea, on Wednesday we go for cider, and maybe on the weekend we open again a bottle of wine. So wine is not the center of our, of our interest. And for these people that want to know a little bit more about wine, they were not really wine magazines. So we, we of course, we, our topic is all around wine, how wine can be, be done, enjoyed, art around it, cultural, but you don't have to be a professional to understand it. So it stays on a level that we don't intimidate you with, with, with the knowledge that you should have or that, that we explain, but it's always, you know, it's like we take wine lovers by the hand and walk with them through the wonderful world of wine. And Chandra, one thing, I'm, I'm always a bit curious, uh, for Vine Cellar Journal, do you have kind of more subscribers or it's more of that person that is just, you know, randomly going through a new new stand and say oh you know what i'm interested in that we have it's, it's in a way it's, we have like three like pillars and you have of course subscribers and usually they they are they are pretty pretty loyal from the beginning we had now with the change we are still evaluating there will be some that maybe say it, it changed too much because it's really it has a, it has a new look and and then we we sell very well at the kiosks so when you pass you see it and and uh, and you take it but then also, of course, uh, you know, all the sommelier schools and the wine academica. So the, the real professionals, they also are very, very keen to have this magazine. So it's, it's like it on different levels. And of course, I also have to mention your wine guide for 2022. So this is, this is going to be valuable for me this year, I have to say. Chandra, do you know, like when you release something like this, are there a lot of trends for wine? Do you believe in trends or, or, or do, do you think... Perhaps in this industry, it's not about the trends, it's about, you know, the classics. I mean, you shouldn't just go just because it's a little bit of a fad, you know, but what would you say? What do you think about this idea of trends, wine trends? Well, there are, of course, because it's, it's, um, it's always connected to our, our going out habits, our eating habits. And, and you have right now very strong movement also, you know, of saving the planet. So this, this has a has also an impact on the wine. So biological vinified wines are very important. You have new grape varietals because of climate change. So you, you create new, new grapes like they are, they're called PV grapes. They are resistant grapes, meaning you don't need to put chemicals in the grapes. So you have new wines done out, out of these grapes. And then you have also wine styles that change. For example, rosé wines, I think they have the boom of, of the century. You have more and more rosé wines coming from all over and or sparkling wines a reason for this can or is you know that we do we live a lot on instagram so in a picture a, a pink wine looks much nicer than then maybe a, a white wine you don't see it or, or a red wine so so all these these colorful happy wines are growing with with every season and in terms of countries do you see any country doing particularly well this year or 
at the moment we all you know everybody suffered a little bit last year not only the COVID, but there was a very uh, different weather conditions so you had a lot of storms you had hail you had frost so the harvest from 21 and you know i can always say buy is 21 wine when you can because the quantity went really down so in in europe in europe so we don't have so much 21 vintage but always you know very very well is in, like in switzerland people love wines from italy we always love the local wines. So Swiss wine are famous that they they consume the whole more, most harvest in the country itself. But Italy's in Spain, you have a lot of new um, vineyards that are like like let's say reactivated, which were very old. You call them like heroic vineyards that are on old old grapes on very particular places where you need a lot of labor to to work on the grape. So stories like this, like like a like pioneer stories are, are more important. And, you know, people got also in the last years a new relationship to time and to taking care of things. So if, if you can save something, you, you have more time because we slowed down all over and we, we, we thought a little bit more about what we are doing and, and what is important. And this has a big impact also in, in the wine industry. Well, talking about favorites, I'm still obsessed. I think I mentioned to you before with my Italian reds, the Nobili, the Multipulciano, but I keep yeah. trying to add new things and I think you're the best person for that. So for example, I mean, people are listening to the stack on a Saturday, a mm -hmm. quiet Saturday. Which, which wine would you drink right now? I know it might be a bit of a tricky question. but No, no, no. Because I, I have please a... give me a red. I like reds. You like reds. So I will not because it's Saturday stack is in the morning. You know, let's say if when it's finished at 11 o'clock, the wine shouldn't be too heavy. Otherwise, you know, you go to sleep immediately after, after a small lunch. So you take um, a lighter red, which, which can be like a Cabernet Franc from the, the, the Loire, and you chill it a little bit. I think what we should learn also that the red wines, we shouldn't drink them too warm. And, and if you have a not too, too opulent, like, like, like a ripe fruity wine, but, but more like, a, like you say, a structured, you have it a little bit chilled and, and this is perfect. So it will not make you tired. You drink it a little bit more relaxed and, um, and it's really a, a lunch wine. That's a great tip because I agree that sometimes you have to cool down a little bit the red. Some people say, oh, you shouldn't, but I mean, we're talking here to yep. be with an expert. So <laughs> uh, Chandra, finally, I also want to mention, I mean, you're loving print this year because there's also your beautiful book, uh, Rice and meat wine, correct me if I'm wrong, travel Rice and meat wine, wine. Yes. Yeah, which is travel with wine. fantastic because you're adding other elements. It's not just about the wine itself, but it's about the places that you go, you know, to learn more about wine, culture in a way. It's a beautiful, stunning book. And I think people would very much appreciate that uh, because when, if you like wine, you want to know where it comes from, you know, and more and more, I would say. Yeah, this is also one of the beauty about wine that attracted me or still attracts me is that wine is connected to origin and usually the wine places or the wineries are in nice places and when you drink and or eat in a place you you you, you are in, in a special region and this, these are 21 stories in in this book that were actually cover stories in the magazine so we changed them a little bit adopt them and also in 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 these two covid years we realized we cannot travel but when you open a bottle of wine, your mind travels immediately to the origin of, of the wine. Of course, you travel after a while if you drink too much also a little bit. But, but the idea is really to, to, to make you travel, to make you dream, to think about that wine really comes from a specific place. And, and when, you, when you drink it at home, but also maybe you, you book a trip one time around in Europe. I mean, we have the most beautiful vineyards 
So, but the book is, is mainly in Europe, of course, we have also in Switzerland, but we went also to California, we went to Argentina, to the highest vineyard that is in Argentina. And, uh, and it's really always this beauty about wine that it's a regional product that is connected to the land, the culture and, and the people and the tradition of this region. So, so really, I, I wanted to, to really to be that you can be at home, you read a little bit about the country, you drink the wine from the region, and you, you travel in your thoughts. And yeah, it helps through this time also, or inspires you maybe really to book a trip to go there. Thank you, Chandra. Always good talking to you and get a few wine tips as well. And now to Scamp Magazine, a visually impressive art title. It's funny, doesn't take itself seriously, and is the love project of Oscar Opre and John William. Issue 3 has a theme, and that's alter egos. Be prepared to discover fascinating characters. I've welcomed Oscar and John to the studio. Well, scamp, like the actual word, is a very old-fashioned word that probably hasn't been in use since, what, like 1952? I think it means, like... Like a delinquent little rascal. If you're a scamp, you probably like dogged school and smoked behind the huts. Mm. And that kind of bad behaviour continued into your adult life. Misbehaviour without malicious intent, I'd say. Which is what the magazine is, right? <laughs> a, a, a little bit naughty in, in, in some ways. And every issue has a theme as well. This one is outer egos, which, I mean, such an interesting theme for, for the age we live in, I think. Wow, I mean, that theme, the background to that actually started in issue two. What was the theme of issue two? The theme actually? of issue two was gods and monsters. Oh. And we had a very special project that I'd been obsessed with about a YouTuber who you may remember, she had a bit of a moment in 2010. She was called the Queen of Vagina. Oh. And she lived somewhere in East London and she basically just sang songs about her, her vagina and had a massive following on Facebook. She had like her own fan club called The Genitalians, which I was a member of. And she appeared on Big... She auditioned for Big Brother. She didn't get on it, but they invited her onto like their, their talk show and gave her a little vagina stage, and she did a little song and stuff. She auditioned for X Factor. Again, I mean, I would love to have seen that audition tape. That was never aired, but there was kind of like a viral video of her outside getting interviewed. And then she... She disappeared just around the time that Trump got into office. And I, I just had this idea of, like, the Queen of Vagina coming out of retirement to sing one final song about Trump, you know, Trump the pussy grabber. So I got in touch with her to try and see if she'd be interested in doing an interview. And she replied, but publicly on her Facebook, to say that... You all know that the Queen of Vagina does not grant interviews and has never granted interviews. <laughs> Big Brother and X Factor was an exception. Uh, but we went ahead anyway and we tried to we tried to set up like a campaign. Uh, we had like missing posters. Uh, I actually found I actually found out her address. I can't remember how I did that. I mean, I was, I'm a very good investigative journalist. <laughs> I think I'm wasted on scamp. I should be at the Sunday Times or something. But yeah, I find, <laughs> I find her address. They, they might be listening. They might be listening. <laughs> well, if you need me, I'm here. Uh, I found her address and I actually, I think I'd, I went there and I kind of had this fantasy of like doorstepping her like the paparazzi. Decided not to do that. But the whole time I was really interested in, in just this woman going home there were rumors online that she worked for like the NHS or whatever. I just thought, imagine coming home from a day in a hospital 
and then putting your wig on and, and putting your camera on and becoming the queen of vagina. So that's kind of where this obsession with people who have parallel lives, parallel characters that they perform. And that's what we decided to do for the, the third issue and explore that in many, many different ways. Mm. Do- I love the idea of um, the expression, a legend in your own living room. I, lo- <laughs> I really like those people who... Sometimes even without an audience, they just have this compulsion to create this mythology around themselves. And some of the people, like in our new issue, are quite well known. Some of them you've never heard of. And, you know, I love that. But what a lot of them have in common is this sort of compulsion to create this character or something in them needs a slightly different way of getting out than the face they see in the mirror every morning. And I think that's very interesting. And I think the the cover choices, they're brilliant. I mean, Miss Herney, I mean, I was talking about the, the, the cover. I mean, it's colourful, it's scary, it's everything at the same time. Who is Miss Hernia, by the way? I don't know who, who, who you can tell well, me a bit more. Well, Miss Hernia is... So do you remember a few years ago there was the Whitechapel Fatberg, which mm. was that huge sewage yes. blockage? Yes. And basically, when Thames Water went down there to deal with it, Miss Hernia was excavated from the sewers <laughs> and was unleashed on the, the streets of East London. And she's, I think she's a, she's a pop star. She makes jewellery. She performs. She's a cabaret performer. I think she's going to go global. She has nice, nice makeup as well. But yeah, beautiful Subtle. makeup. Subtle. She she actually got pregnant during lockdown and she gave birth to her new face at our launch party <laughs> uh, at the Queen Adelaide. So she's got she has a new face now at the moment. I saw her on Instagram, I think, 2019, and it's very well. There's few occasions where you're on Instagram and you just stop like a car screeching to a halt. And she had a she had like an event, one of her performances, and some tiny little studio and bowl it was a horrible evening it was freezing cold and I dragged my friend out uh, I was like do you want to go to the theatre and his idea of the theatre is like I don't know the Lion King or something like that and I dragged him to this this terrible little studio <laughs> and Miss Hernia was there basically bouncing around in a space hopper and she had a giant she had a giant mountain of lard and she was making sandwiches and throwing them at the crowd and I knew then I was like you are my cover girl for issue three um, the biggest surprise, though, is that I thought she was—I thought it was a drag queen. But Miss Hernia behind the mask is actually a really, really nice, sweet girl called Lolly, who you also meet in the at the front of the issue. We do a, stu- a studio visit with Lolly. She talks about the ideas. She sees Miss Hernia as like her um, her emotional pain body. She's really into Eckhart Tolle, that power of now guru. So Miss Hernia is like her way of letting go of all her emotional baggage in a very vibrant, colourful way. I'm very curious something about YouTube, perhaps, John. I mean, it is an art magazine as well, but is is your background for both of you art or do you had any experience with print before or Scamp was a completely kind of new project for both of you when it comes to magazines? We're both obsessed with magazines and um, really it's just a compulsion. For me, there's no reasoning behind it. There's no way that I can really understand it it's just a compulsion and I have always made magazines going back to little zines about my trolls and my polar bear teddy bear I've always worked in magazines from zines to stuff that feels a little bit more legit and 
you know, I think feel like I always will. And so Scamp, Oscar and I had worked together on other projects before Scamp. And it was, I think, through like a mutual admiration of each other as publishers and editors. If you can get a magazine out on a really tiny shoestring and if you can make it happen, there's a lot of hard work. And so when you see somebody else who's done that, you often kind of want to connect, give them a pat on the back or you know, kind of ask them how they went about certain things. Just let them know they did a good job because anyone who works in print knows it. it is a compulsion that goes beyond reason. It's such hard work. And and I think it's just that mutual obsession with printed matter that sort of brought us together. And we'd worked on other things before. Well, you worked on a shoot I commissioned yes. with an ex-boyfriend of mine and they, you didn't really like each other. I really, <laughs> I, and look at you too. I really liked the shit you did, and I thought, well, he must have done something right, that John William guy. So when I was doing Scamp Issue One, you, the first thing we did together was a was a project where I basically bought, a, you can you can buy lost property from Heathrow Airport, at an auction house in Tooting. So you go and you you Good to know. you bid for it just in case you you need any new clothes. You can't see the contents of the suitcase. You can just, like, judge it through your, I don't know, psychic ability that there mm. might be something worthwhile inside. It's a real lucky dip. A very lucky dip. And I, so I turned up... So hold on a second. You, you, don't, you don't see what's inside no, the package? No, people do. It's like, it's like doing a scratch card. Maybe there'll be a Rolex watch <laughs> buried in amongst the, yes. some dirty underwear or something. John was the fashion director of Issue 1. And our entire fashion shoot was based on the contents of one of these suitcases that I paid, I think I paid £60 for it or something. <laughs> it was a, this is it here, it was a raspberry-coloured suitcase that I got an amazing vibe from. Bought that, and then I think I met you, we turned up almost like it was some sort of weird MI5 secret mission <laughs> at um, Westfield, and I handed that suitcase over to you. <laughs> you took it back home, opened it up. And uh, you basically commissioned an entire shoot about this this family's life based on the clothes we found inside. Yeah, I opened this suitcase and I just got this overwhelming feeling of sadness. Mm. It, it was really strange. They, it was full of never worn baby wear. Like, what is that? Um, what's that? The, what, what's the world's shortest story? It's often misattributed to Hemingway. Baby's shoes never worn. <laughs> And it was that was kind of the the energy from this suitcase. There was unworn children's wear. There was a packet of tampons, a dress, but a little black dress, but in the sale at Zara for I think it was like two euros. And everything else was this like gigantic men's wear that all had kind of really off-label sort of logos. You know, not Dolce and Gabbana, but more like Dodgy and Banana. And I just sort of, this this woman emerged from the suitcase and I called her Audrey Carpetburn. And she, um, in her living room, she had a print of Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is a real pet hate of mine. It's um, it's, a, it's a real buzzkill for me if I ever see a print of Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly. <laughs> and I just imagined her with this little black dress that she got for two euros. All these unworn babies' clothes, I just kind of imagined she'd... She was faking this pregnancy, so there was this either fake or phantom pregnancy and this little black dress and her her picture of Audrey Hepburn above the mantelpiece. This was 
how she tried to sort of escape to another world. But they've been to Ireland, haven't they? Because we found a little paper bag from, like, was it Dublin Cathedral? Yes. But the the gift had been taken out because I think the auction take anything of value out first. <laughs> ah, okay. So the souvenir had been sold as a separate auction lot. <laughs> oh, but her little black dress wasn't considered valuable enough. My mum hated that story. It was probably two, year, two years, as you said. My yeah. mum thought that was really unethical, that story. She said it really upset her. I mean, it was all fictional. <laughs> and I think that there's no such thing as, you know, ethics in fiction. Or fashion. Or fashion. What about ethic, ethics in magazine? Because one thing, it's, it's nice. It's nice to push a little bit, kind of, mm. the boundaries mm. sometimes, right? Mm. I mean, not, not to be too safe. Oh, I mean, one of the nice things, I think you both wrote in the editorial letter, there, there's no mention of the C word. As well, which um, COVID, I, I presume, right? That's the one you couldn't. No, it's the other one. No, the other one is you can't. Say that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's the, it's COVID, right? COVID, or, yeah. COVID. COVID. Oh man! Why did I have to say COVID right now? COVID just this issue took so long because mm. of COVID. Yeah, it, it's interesting though because we've always made things on um, a shoestring, and I love the direct quality of lo-fi. You know, you make mm. it happen. You make it with whatever resources you have. And um, because of the C word, in the past couple of years, as we've gone through this shift in how people have been allowed to create content, there's been a much more widespread appreciation of sort of lo-fi and things being made in bedrooms. And that's actually been quite jolly to see. Um, I'm talking here more about fashion magazines, I guess. You know, the pompous, ridiculous, overproduced stories being taken down to something much more simple and i i always like this directness with visual content you know i i shoot analog i don't do any retouching i get all of the films processed at soho snappy snaps because they are the best and they're the cheapest you know most photographers in london would have a heart attack if they knew i got everything done at snappy snaps but it's just about speed efficiency you know, not having any barriers between creating something. The great thing about being a writer is you can do it anywhere and you don't need a huge team to kind of rely on for you to make something. And And I think that as a writer and a visual creator, I, I like to take that, I guess it's a form of autonomy in my image making. Collaboration is amazing, it's essential, and I love to collaborate, but... For me, if I'm going to bring somebody onto a project, I want their work to be celebrated and absolutely vital in that story. My absolute hate in sort of fashion media is when you see a huge list of contributors who all work together on an image of, which is basically a picture of a model against a white background, and you've got movement directors and scenery coordinators and, you know, makeup consultants and, you know, holistic herbology you know, this and that. Celebrity beauty editor. Yeah, and, and all of these pointless names who, you know, where where is the hard work present in the image of a boring celebrity gets a white background? I really believe in using resources well, using them fairly, um, paying people that you work with or allowing them to really have a point of view. And so if we bring this back to ethics, I guess for me that would be where I do have a strong code of ethics in publishing. If you are inviting somebody to work with you and to collaborate, you want to give them space and freedom and respect that. I think that's one of the 
best things between Oscar and I, actually. We we never interfere with each other's work and we've never had a cross word when it comes to content. Mm. We respect each other's opinion a great deal and we can push each other, but there's never been like a... It's funny, there's never been any awkward moments with any of the content. Yeah, I think also the lo-fi thing's interesting. I think there's something to be said about like the bedroom magazine, which is mm. what Scam really is. I always laugh, we get these emails from these <laughs> kids that... Uh, want an internship with us they must think we have like a suite of offices or something it's really just me in my dressing gown Mm. farting in my bedroom as I edit an article it's really not a professional or educational environment for an intern <laughs> but it's sweet, it's sweet that they're they still emailing you for, for an internship yeah. well, scamp hq what about the, the business side of it i mean where do you guys oh, sell it no I, i have to ask this question mm. do you guys sell it on your website or do you have some stockists well, around yeah, we, we, we uh, actually know. have a distributor we, we're Amazing. with Bantam books so you can you can buy scamp in texas italy <laughs> barrack upon tweed which i believe we sold out of Oh, fabulous. I'm not sure if we're in Milton Keynes, but... Um... Well, if there's any listeners from Milton Keynes, I, please. I was very interested in the fact that we were in these places. It's kind of what you were saying, John, about... And it's maybe to do with the C word as well, is that it seems like there's been all these little... These interesting little shops opening around the country and places. That was Oscar Opre and John William from Scamp Magazine. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Mm-hmm.